Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans, and in studio, I have two dear friends with me. I have Kristen Eichhammer, my colleague here at the Heritage Foundation, and as always, my friend, my girl, Sarah Perry. Welcome, guys. Holla. Holla. <laughs> so we were going to use ChatGPT to come up with a intro, but it's down. Yeah, that's insane. And yeah, like what our AI overlords have already failed us. I think that's a good yeah. thing, though. I think that's a win for us. <laughs> One point true. humanity. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And don't underestimate the reach of Elon Musk, who is also not a fan of AI. Mm. Rather you, ironic, considering ha- he's sort of a tech overlord himself at Twitter. Or you, X. <laughs> X. X now, X. as we're calling it. Sorry. <laughs> it's so hard to not say retweet or... Uh, did you see this on Twitter? Somebody's like, you mean X? And I'm like, <sighs> what does that mean? That is not a verb. No, <laughs> no, it's a letter. It's, it's a, a letter. letter. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of AI, have you seen like the, there's a movie coming out about AI and they have these like robot people yeah. that are actors dressed up like robots and they're like now in crowds just to be weird. I saw that back in like the early 2000s. It was the most terrifying movie, I, Robot. Thank you. It w- And there I was another it. one I think called AI. Yeah, with mm. the little boy. Thank you. That was a one of those movies that scarred me. Yeah. It did me too. Why was that so creepy? It's the scene in the water. Yes. Mm. Boy, did that bother me. Yes. But I think there's a new one coming out in 2023. And these people have, like, normal human faces, yeah. but then the, their ears and the back of their head ha- are, like, mechanical. And then they mm. wear, like, weird futuristic clothes. But they've been having them, like, just stand in the, the stands in, like, football games and stuff. I saw that. And I thought it was real. I'm not going to lie. It was so lifelike. And I'm like, oh, those those aren't people. They don't have ears. <laughs> yeah. Let's not give the tech overlords any more fodder by actually designing something that could be utilized in the future. Yeah. Say what? Yeah. Or normalize it. <laughs> Well, we have some good things in our very short future. We have a action-packed show here for you today. We're breaking out. There's a um, a case that is encouraging out of California, which is almost uh, something that you're very surprised to hear. We then have a very special caller, a friend of problematic women that you want to miss. And finally, we break down the FACE Act, what it is, and two septuagenarians that might be going to prison for violating the law. And as always, we'll be crowning our problematic woman of the week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. All right. Out, there's news out of California of a court case that could actually do some good for the country. Sarah, can you break down what is actually happening? Yeah, this is actually tremendous. So we've heard a lot about school districts that are hiding gender identity information from parents. OK, first of all, let me start with this premise. It is unconstitutional. A parent parent has a right under the 14th Amendment under what's called a substantive due process right conservative legal scholars. We don't like it. But the fact of the matter is the Supreme Court's recognized it for more than 100 years over and over again. It is considered to be a 
a sort of incontrovertible reality in American history and tradition. It goes back millennia, right, since the creation of the family, which, by the way, predates government. But a lot of these school districts, in an active effort to cut parents out of the equation, are hiding information about a child's preferred pronoun use, their preferred name, preferred bathroom use, and their gender identity at school. Well, there have been six federal lawsuits filed. The federal court in Maryland, unfortunately, came out with a horrible decision deciding that this was more akin to curriculum, a Mm. policy like this, and that parents, by the way, didn't have a constitutional right to know about their child's gender identity. It was appealed to the Fourth Circuit. Unfortunately, the Fourth Circuit also reinforce that decision. So it's the first federal appellate court to uphold a school policy like this under a different legal theory, basically saying that the plaintiffs didn't have standing. In other words, they couldn't show that they had transgender children or that any information had been hidden from them on their child's record. So they dismissed the case. Well, we just got a great outcome out of California, of all places, in federal district court, in which the federal court judge, Robert Benitez, said this is the trifecta of harm. It harms kids who need their parents' guidance. Mm. It harms parents who have a constitutional right to direct their child's upbringing. And it harms teachers who are being forced to be muzzled because they are being told to actively lie. So two teachers actually brought a First Amendment claim saying it violates their First Amendment rights, their freedom of religion and their freedom of speech. And it was muzzling them because they feel they have a not only constitutional duty, but a religious duty to tell the truth. And thankfully, the first district court in the country enjoined, meaning it temporarily halted this policy so that the litigation can go forward, which is a tremendous victory for common sense. And based on the fact that we're going to have a conversation with Marianne Jensen, and she had a very interesting conversation in which a doctor tried to talk about a certain gender identity topic with her minor child, we are seeing this in more context. Anybody who says that this is not part of an active and concerted effort to get kids to question who they are and to believe that their biological reality is fungible and manipulable is lying to you because it is very much an active effort. So we're seeing so much out of California. You know, we have AB 957, which is the bill that has passed so far. Newsom has not signed it that says that if you don't affirm a child's gender, you know, you could lose custody. Yeah. What kind of implications does a case have this, both on California and then nationwide? Well, it's actually a great outcome, particularly in California, because what it does is it provides a stopgap for Governor Newsom's active events or Mm -hmm. sort of his active efforts to go in and trans these kids. I'm using that as a verb. We've seen it, obviously, as an adjective describing these children. This is now a verb. There is an active effort to trans these minor children. This is a package of bills coming out of California. Mm. Five bills landed on his desk, and one of them prevented parents from getting information in medical contexts and from in, from uh, education contacts about their minor children if there's gender dysphoria. Well, 
thank goodness we've just gotten this good federal court decision in which Judge Benitez has said, wait a minute, policies like this are obviously unconstitutional. That means that a bill like Newsom's, once it's signed, is going to, in my view, be immediately challenged in court. And do you think this will continue to go up? I mean, are we looking at this case potentially going all the way to the Supreme Court? Well, I tell you what, if there is a circuit split, if the Ninth Circuit, which is the next federal court, Mm -hmm. sort of in the ladder, right, for appellate litigation, if the Fourth Circuit, which we already know, and the Ninth Circuit, which would be up next, come to different conclusions, when there are federal circuit splits, it is entirely more likely that the U.S. Supreme Court will say, We have to resolve this question because we're seeing the states come to different conclusions on this. That is something I think ultimately the Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in on. And we've already seen this in this context of gender, quote, affirming medical bans for individuals under the age of 18. We've seen different outcomes in the 6th and the 11th, but an outcome that's completely opposite in the 8th. So this notion of sort of the parameters, the structure, the boundaries of that parental right what it involves and whether or not it includes a right to pronoun information and gender identity information in school and whether it likewise includes this experimental graphic life-altering treatment, that remains to be seen. But it sure does look increasingly like the Supreme Court's going to be forced to weigh in. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's crazy to me here is you're, you're, what you're saying, if I'm understanding this correctly, the courts within California – are ruling differently. Right. Correct? Yeah. Right. So, so this federal court in California has ruled differently than a federal court out in Maryland. And that's that is not only a good outcome, but also sort of a good stepping stone to get the Supreme Court to weigh in. Yeah, I just it seems like common sense then that there would this would be escalated. It's like, you know, the, the kids can't agree on something. So Supreme Court's got to come in and, right. and make a decision here. But And there is constitutional precedent, Sarah. This is something that you've talked about a lot of parents being able to be really in charge of their child, right, yeah. and and how they, they raise that child. Can you uh, explain that a little bit more? Yeah. In fact, uh, back in 1923, in a case called Meyer versus Nebraska, the Supreme Court articulated a parent's primary right to direct the upbringing, care, and education of their minor children. This is, of course, a natural right. It doesn't just spring from law. We understand it that it springs from the natural family structure, history, and the very order of how good God put families together in the first place. But the Supreme Court's had to over and over again reiterate that right, address the right, what it includes, what it doesn't include. As recently as the year 2000 in Troxel versus Granville, the Supreme Court said this parenting interest is among the oldest of all of the fundamental liberty interests we've ever recognized. That is pretty ringing endorsement and explanation from the Supreme Court. They have never said that this particular parental right, however, includes the right to get experimental medical care. In fact, the Supreme Court's never held that medical care is a constitutional right. That is something that I think bodes well for when these challenges on the medical bans go all the way up to the Supreme Court, is the the state is standing in an interest of protecting vulnerable populations. And listen, there are times we know a parent doesn't always 
act in a child's best interest. That's why we have, for example, child protective services, child custody laws, domestic abuse laws, so that the the state can step in and say, if the parents aren't going to protect this child, then we're going to stand in and protect them anyway. But the opposite side of that coin is what we're seeing out in the school districts and everywhere from Maryland to California, where the school districts are literally hiding information from parents. That is not going to withstand a constitutional challenge. It didn't in California. I will say the court was distinctly wrong out in Maryland and eventually at the Fourth Circuit. But again, all of this is going to have to be ultimately sort of figured out and worked through by the Supreme Court because we're getting different states, different federal appellate courts to weigh in differently. And like you said, this is, you know, all very hypothetical, all very legal, all, you know, there's there's a lot of precedent here. But in the meantime, there are real, really women and girls who are being harmed by this. It yeah. makes me think of Abigail um, Martinez, who lost her daughter, Yaley. She was caught up in this transgender craze. Yeah. And Abigail refused to say that my daughter is now a boy. She lost custody of her daughter. Yeah. And then her daughter committed suicide. Yeah. And how, how how can the state say this was the best outcome for the daughter to take her away from the mother? That's that's exactly it. We don't want to, and the law does not recognize the interest in divesting a custodial parent of custody of their child unless you can really prove extreme harm, right? So judges use a standard of health, safety, and welfare, the best interest of the child. The problem is we have government officials coming out of the White House, coming out of Congress who are telling us, oh, gender identity affirmation is in the best interest. This is life-affirming care. We know distinctly it is not. That is, of course, the explanation for the rise of the Mm detransitioners, number one. And number two, we're also recognizing many of these young people have comorbid mental health diagnoses. Thirty percent of the young women presenting to gender clinics and just to gender clinics. I'm not talking about a school context. I'm talking about in a clinical setting have undiagnosed Asperger's or autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. We're throwing these kids into gender transition without considering the long-term costs and without allowing the normal development of puberty to resolve any gender dysphoria because 80 to 90 percent of these kids eventually get through puberty and say, you know what, that was just a phase. Because, yes, for many of these kids, it is. Listen, we don't need schools actively hiding information from parents. They get enough pressure on the gender identity notion from their friends, from social media, from pop stars, from movie stars. They don't need people who are being paid with our tax dollars to be able to divest us of information critical to our children's welfare. I think that's like. The key thing is we're literally funding these people that are disenfranchising yep. parents. Um, it, I'm kind of tr- I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. That's why I've been so quiet. But it's kind of like they'd call you if your kid broke their bone, right? They'd call you if they had some issue with like blood or whatever, and it just it's almost as if they're saying, oh. It doesn't matter what you need to know. Like this is, but they're still defining gender identity as healthcare. Like I just, I can't wrap my head around it. That's the big part of it, Kristen. Is once you throw gender affirming again, air quotes, care <laughs> into sort of this is necessary, it is life saving. 
a lot of people are sort of gobbling up this narrative without actually doing their homework, asking the hard questions. They obviously are not addressing the lack of longitudinal data on this, the rise of detransitioners, the fact that Finland, Sweden, Norway, England have all backed off this aggressive effort to send kids through this pipeline and to affirm whatever this transient gender dysphoria is for European nations back off. And yet America is full throttle ahead. It's unconscionable. And Kristen, that's such a good point, too, about like they would call you if you had, you know, a bloody or broken bone. I remember growing up, the school nurse couldn't even give me an Advil mm-hmm. without calling my mom. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I, I got calls all the time for my three, and I couldn't get my, my 15-year-old daughter's ear pierced without being there and signing right. a release yeah. form. Well, that's what I was just thinking, too, is if we eventually, right, they only allow f- family for um, emergencies. Like if someone tragically gets into an emergency, like every soap opera ever, it's like, oh, you're not a family member. You can't come back. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right? So... Does that then change down the road? Like, what happens if your kid goes through trend, uh, the transition surgery? Something goes wrong. Are they then not parents not allowed to go help their kid during right. this surgery? Like, I just cannot wrap my brain around this. It's so foreign to me. It's it is. so awful and evil. It's dystopian, yeah. is what it is. Yes. All right. So lawyers hate the question: Can you predict what's going to happen? <laughs> So do it. <laughs> and you know what? If if John Malcolm, who's the VP of the Institute for no. Constitutional Government, was listening to this right now, he would say, don't you dare prognosticate because he hates it when I do that. Although I will say I'm right about 70 percent of the time. So I'm pitching a decent average. Well, and I want to bring it into like a larger context. Right. So we have the Biden administration is trying to change Title IX to include gender identity. Yeah. You know, we have Moms for Liberty and all these more grassroots coming up. We have an election where we know gender and kind of this parental rights is going to be huge in the election. Oh, yeah. How do you think it, we have all these cases, right? And we've seen it with, with Dobbs how one case can change everything. But how do you think this will end up not necessarily only in the legal sense, but if we're looking now five years ahead, right, when we're like, oh, my gosh, how did we how did we let this happen? How do you think what is going to be the tipping point for Americans? You know, that's a good point. Um, I think it depends a lot on the election next mm-hmm. year. I think the more gender identitarianism is shoved down our throats, the more you're going to see a mass exodus from public schools. People are tired. And listen, guys, I worked in the U.S. Department of Education. Mm-hmm. I was for many years a fan of public education. My kids went to public education until they were about sort of ninth grade, tenth grade. And then it got to be too much. And we sent them to private school. And thankfully, my oldest now is blessedly in college. But I've got to tell you, the influence is now not just education. It is unionization. It is sort of this industrialized push for progressive ideations, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, we're not trying to make sure that Johnny and Jane are getting their English scores and their math scores up to par. Listen, I, I raised kids in Baltimore County public schools, very affluent, very high median income. I'm going to tell you, we literally moved into the school district because it was a great public Mm -hmm. school, but they had a 30% math literacy rate. But boy, they could not wait 
to hang the flag, the rainbow trans oh, flag, gosh. during Pride Month. That, to me, is such malfeasance when it comes to preparing our kids for the future. And that's what these teachers are tasked with doing. So I think it, A, depends on the election, and B, it depends on what people are willing to do. What are parents now willing to do? I've talked to two dads, dads, friends from sort of many years ago in my past life, come to me and said... Two dads like together? No, no. (laughs) Two different dads who both have kids in the public school system. They both said, literally unrelated, I'm running for school board. What can Mm. you do to help me? I mean, amazing. It's like, that's it. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's going to be everyday people who stand up and say... Enough. Mm. We don't need to wait for sexual assaults like we had in Loudoun County. We don't need to wait for Leah Thomas's to divest Riley Gaines of scholarships or NCAA titles. That should not be the tipping point. We've got to work together to get the right people in office who are going to reflect an understanding of the law that keeps with Supreme Court precedent for over 100 years. It reminds me of that meme where it's uh, people have been using a lot lately. <laughs> I don't often think about Rome, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And then there's like a photo or something. <laughs> and I'm just sitting here like, wow, we're literally like pushing this ideology. Meanwhile, China right. is over here having second graders do calculus. Right. Like, That's what are we exactly doing? It. That's exactly it. <laughs> All right. Well, we could talk about gender identity, I think, all day. But we're going to have to take a quick break. We have a really great rest of the show for you. But before we do take a break, I want to let you know about one of my favorite podcasts that we produce here at Heritage, besides Problematic Women, is Heritage Explains. Each week, host Mark Guiney takes an issue that is in the news that is important and breaks it down on a one-on-one level. And he has so many interesting guests. And my favorite part is the way that he tells stories to this. So make sure wherever you get your podcast, look up Heritage Explains. We'll be right back. Well, we have a big surprise for you this episode. I'm so excited. We have another problematic woman joining us, the one and only Marianne Jensen. Welcome to the show, Marianne. Hey, thanks for having me. So for those who don't know Marianne, uh, you should because she's awesome. Uh, About a year and a half ago, we found a clip of her just going off on her school board. Her famous line, if masks work, why don't they? And (laughs) we clipped it. We put it on Twitter. It blew up. And poor Marianne, she saw this happening. I somehow found her phone number on the Internet. I called her the next morning. We're at her house. And from there, things have been she's really just done amazing things for her school, her school board. And then just nationally, she's been really involved. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, I wasn't even on Twitter when my speech blew up. And I had people calling me and emailing me, what's going on? I was like, what? (laughs) I I didn't even know how Twitter worked and didn't know anything about this. And apparently, I, you know, I went from seven followers from 2015 to like 20,000 overnight. It was crazy. Well, it just goes to show you that there's a big void in, I think, the American dialogue about what parents feel they have the power to say and when they hear ordinary people who have kids in these situations speaking up on behalf of truth, basic fundamental principles, um, it's really, I think, encouraging to so many people out there, and particularly because we know most Americans get their news from social media. 
what an opportunity for you to just talk from your heart about what's going on with your own kids. And I think it really kind of hit a nerve. So we're expecting you to hit more nerves, Marianne. <laughs> oh, I, I have been known to hit lots of nerves the last couple of years. So I have no problem doing that. And I love that you said you, you really didn't have a Twitter, but now you have all these followers. And not only that, but you probably have one of the coolest bios I've seen. It starts with Fought Masks and One. Can you tell us, you know, a little bit more about w- what kind of started this journey and, and what really, you know, started to get you involved in, in speaking up for the kids? Yeah, you know, I actually just changed my Twitter profile yesterday. Um, <laughs> I, I am um, back in 2020. I knew the day my kids got off the school bus on March 12th that something was amiss. I knew I was never involved in politics before. I didn't even know who our governor was. And I know that's embarrassing to admit, but I didn't. I just didn't care. I always voted, but didn't was not involved. It did not define me. And um, my husband has studied viruses like most men study fantasy football. He's just <laughs> very involved with with you know, viruses and medical terminology, reads uh, medical journals for fun. And so he always told me, it's, this is not the virus that they're going to make it out to be. He was always in politics and he said, this is going to be political. So I started being involved and I knew that when my kids got off that bus, that they were not going back. And I knew that something was wrong. And um, I fought masks from day one. We never wore them to church. We never wore them out and about. And I got a lot of enemies from that, but I always knew that this was a lie. And like I said, when my kids got off the bus, I knew I had to start fighting for my kids because I knew this was going to get ugly. Uh, we went to back to school rallies. We, I emailed the school board. I did everything I could to try to get my kids back to school. And that's where it all started. And then once they finally started going back to school, they had to wear masks, which is a whole nother level of madness. Um, I bought the mask with holes in them and my child, he was getting terrible headaches and anxiety. And I mean, that's a whole nother story I could go into because he thought he had a brain tumor and he cried all the way to the hospital because he was too little to die, you know, and just the the trauma in my kids for these stupid masks. But it, it was not the hill I was going to die on. I sent my kids back to school I had a conversation with our superintendent one night. She said, oh, when we get a new governor, you know, things could change. I'm Right now, my hands are tied by Governor Northam's policies. And so when our governor, we got a new governor, Governor Youngkin said no more masks. We were so excited. And then they sued the governor. And so that's when I gave my speech at the school board. I confronted our superintendent, called her out. And a week later, kids were out of masks. Now, I don't know if that was because of my school board speech. I don't know if it was a catalyst. I know things were changing around the country. But I do feel like the pressure that, that we put on our school board, and it wasn't just me. It just happened to be that my, my speech went viral. There was a lot of involvement. Unfortunately, a lot of that involvement has died because people, the kids are back in school and parents are not realizing what else is going on. That was just a tiny tip of the iceberg. There is so much more to keep fighting for our kids and parents have fallen asleep. A lot of parents have fallen asleep since then. Yeah, I would agree with that, Marianne. And I got to tell you that now we're hearing a lot of scuttlebutt about yet another variant in the COVID virus. 
and we're hearing increasing rhetoric from the left about needing to mask up again, needing to get your sixth, eighteenth, twenty fifth, whatever it is, booster. Yeah. I want to know how you're going into this because I know you still have kids in in school. How are you approaching what is certain to be sort of a revisiting a, a coda of exactly what we've dealt with the first time around with COVID? Oh, I can't stand it. I mean, I still see people in masks, double masks, and they just it triggers me. I want to do something not very nice to them, but I, you know, <laughs> but you know, gratefully in in Virginia, thankfully Governor Youngkin did pass the law, and that was the one good thing that came out of that lawsuit was that he he made a law that children will not be masked in schools anymore, and so that does give me a lot of relief. Um, there are still a few teachers who are masking, which make me so angry because kids need to be able to see their faces. But, you know, we don't we don't play this game. I'm trying to give my kids a normal childhood where we're not going to let this affect us. We, you know, my kids are so aware of what's going on. They roll their eyes when they see people driving with their masks and things <laughs> like that. But it's, you know, I guess I just maybe have too much trust that our school board won't mask us again. I know our the chairman of our school board is against masks and he never wanted them in the first place. So he says, but so I, I think we're, we're safe there for schools, but as far as everywhere else, I'm not going to vaccinate my kids over my dead body. You know, they, I will pull my kids and homeschool before schools ever require vaccines or masks again. I won't do it. Well, it's interesting. You said over my dead body, that was the subject of another tweet that you just <laughs> issued. <laughs> Tell us about you taking your 14-year-old to the doctor and what transpired there. Oh, boy. That was a fun day. On Friday, so I haven't taken my children to their wealth checkups all through COVID. I just did not want to deal with the mask situation. And so I finally take my 14-year-old, which, first of all, when we have Kaiser, and when he turned 13, Kaiser turned off my turned off the records. So I don't have access to my son's records at 13 years old. And mm. so I... I, you know, went in and created an account using my son's information so I could get access to his records. He's 14 now, barely forgets to brush. I mean, he forgets to brush his teeth, forgets to put on deodorant, and yet they're expecting <laughs> him to, you know, have access to these records. Anyway, so we, we, we got an appointment and I took him in and the doctor first was in a mask, which she never has worn a mask before. And I said, why are you wearing a mask? And she said, Oh, because I'm really sick. And I just let her have it. I said, you are a doctor. I said, why are you to work? You know, so I kind of went off on that whole thing. Like, you know better. You've been to medical school. You know these masks don't work. Right. And mm -hmm. breathing down my kid's face, sicker than a dog. So I was already triggered. <laughs> I know. I tell you, masks do this to me. So then she, there was a list of questions that I had to fill out and then a list that he had to fill out. And the doctor said, can I, you know, let me see your questions. I said, no, let me read through these first. And I wanted to just check his answers. So I read through his answers and had to clarify a few things. Then there was a section at the bottom that I didn't see because she, she took the clipboard back. And she said, okay, so mom, this is where we ask you to step out of the room. And I looked at her and I said, just that over my dead body. I said, this is my child. This is my child. And if he has anything to say, he can say it in front of both of us. And so I think between the masks and, and that, she was like, oh, she's one of those moms, you know. So then um, she asked him about drugs and alcohol use. And I just, I let him answer because, you know, I felt like these are questions that he can answer. And then she said, I kid you not, 
are you comfortable with your gender? Oh, boy. Yeah. And I looked at her and I said, yes, he is. And I said, we are done here. I said, you know, and then I I went off on a, I unleashed. And I can tell you what I said if you want me to. But I I unleashed. And I said, we're not doing this. We are not doing this. I said, Kaiser is already being sued for doing double mastectomies on minors. I said, why are you planting the seed in my child's mind? I said, even if he does not have, I said, if he does or doesn't have issues, this is not your business. And I, I just went on. I said, we're done here. And she gave me the paperwork and we left. And I, I had steam coming out of my ears. And, and later my son said to me, he's like, Mom, I'm so grateful that you and Dad have had these conversations with me because if you weren't in the room, I would, I'd be so confused by that, by that question. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what to say. It, it didn't make sense to me. And, and I said, honey, she is planting that seed in your mind. Because down the road, if you do ever start questioning, you, you would never start questioning until she put that in your mind. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. Yeah, we're seeing so, we're seeing all of these sort of increase in what some of us have colloquially called grooming, but yeah. that sort of that widespread infection, and it is infection, of the yeah. notion that sex is not immutable and that you can kind of be whatever you want to be for a 14-year-old boy who's already ruled by his hormones. And I must say, Marianne, I have a 14-year-old boy as well. <laughs> and yes, yes, getting him to make his bed or brush his teeth is quite a struggle. So if you plant that seed in a child's head when they wouldn't ordinarily even be considering it, this is why we are seeing 4,400% increases in the 12 to 18-year-old cohort. It's absolutely inexcusable. And for medical science, for the hard sciences to suddenly go soft on the notion of biological reality, something that can be verified by chromosomal makeup and zygotes, it just, to my mind, it's absolutely astonishing. Yeah. No, I agree. And I have daughters as well, you know, two two young daughters. And my eight-year-old had a dream that her cousin was transgender the other day. And I thought, you are eight years old. You should not even be knowing about this. But kids at school ask her, are you, do you support the LGBTQ? My daughter's like, what, what is that? You know, comes home and asks me what it is. And then I have to have these conversations. And she's my one daughter who she will do anything for to be famous or to be popular or to get people to like her. And I worry about her because who knows what she's going to do. These kids are planting these seeds. These people are having conversations that that scare me for her yeah. and for my other daughter who's in middle school. It's one of and the it's- best marketing campaigns, I think. <laughs> and Like you could take note um, in the communications uh like behind all of this, how it's just caught on, honestly, like the coronavirus did. Um, but yep. really quick, just to step back, what was the justification of you not being allowed to see those records when he turned 13? Because to my understanding, growing up, I thought that was at 18, that records were no longer available to, to parents. Well, it should be, but this is Kaiser we're talking about. Kaiser is very woke, and I have had a lot of people reach out to me and say, oh, yeah, Kaiser does that. Kaiser does that. They that's that's been known for a long time that they shut you off with their records, um, and so we're we're leaving Kaiser in November come open enrollment. But I I can't get out of there fast enough. I'm so disgusted by the organization and what they're pushing on on kids' growth. 
Yeah. So you, as Sarah mentioned, you tweeted about this. This tweet has 2.6 million impressions on Twitter, which is is huge. What response have you gotten to this story from your network? Um, you know, I don't read a lot of the comments because I'm always afraid of of negative stuff, and I don't mm-hmm. need that. I don't need that negativity. Mm-hmm. But I've actually the comments that I've read have all been in support. You know, there's a few that like, oh, I bet you this didn't happen. I'm like, well, okay, you can believe what you want. <laughs> sure did. I'm not making up stories. I have my 14 year old to, you know, to to show it. But um, I think I think it resonated with people. And it's funny because I was really angry, but I did not think it would it would go viral like this. I mean, I I just put it out there just as a normal tweet. And I've had a lot of a lot of people reaching out and saying, wow, you know, this I can't believe this is happening, but I don't know. It's I think for the most part, I, it's been good, and and it's been a lot of good reception to it. I think that's because, like I said, there are parents who are really hungry for stories of strength coming from parents because they recognize that really the new field in sort of not only American law but policy and culture are school-age kids. We know how involved the unions are. We know how leftist the curriculum is. We know how aggressively pro-transgender a lot of these educators and administrators are. We also know how pro-vax, mask, separation. The science tells us otherwise on so much of this. And yet, I think people are hungry for real-life stories of moms and dads who are taking a stand. I think, Marianne, it's why your school board speech went viral. And I think it's why this tweet went viral. You know, courage is contagious. And even for somebody who has older kids, mine are 14, 16, and 19, that is an encouragement to me that the next time I'm faced with a situation like that, that I, too, can get a little steel in my spine. But you set such a great example for other parents just living their lives against the onslaught of cultural Marxism. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. You know, in the past, I never would have considered myself bold or outspoken at all. And boy, when you come from my kids, it's amazing what what courage and strength we can find. Um, that doctor messed with the wrong mom. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'd say. I, yeah, my son, we, he walks out and he's like, Mom, I don't think she knows who you are. And I'm like, nope, she doesn't know. <laughs> but it's been really it's been really encouraging to see so many parents reach out and say, wow, you have given me strength. And I would never think that about myself. You know, I'm not the most confident and, you know, bold person, but I've, I've really grown a lot in the last year and a half, and I'm not afraid to speak my mind. And I've lost friends, but I've gained so many more friends through what I've been doing. Well, Marianne, it was such a pleasure to have you here today. You you really do always re-energize us when you talk to us, and I hope this isn't the last time that we have you on Problematic Women. I really hope I'm back again at it. Thank you so much for having me. My guess is you will be based on how bold you've been so far. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, stay away from my kids, and then I don't have to come on again. (laughs) Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Marianne. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. 
Don't you just love Marianne? That was awesome. She is tremendous. She is definitely the kind of person that encourages everyday Americans. You know, we talked at the mm-hmm. beginning of the show of like what it's going to take, what the tipping point is going to mm-hmm. be. It is parents mm-hmm. waking up, understanding the stakes. I tell you what, the minute you get my kids in the firing <laughs> line, you best hang it up. Wow. That's, those are some threatening words. Oh, boy. Well, I tell you what, the people I work with know that to be but the it's, truth. But it's also those that want to be parents, right? Mm, like yeah. those that don't have mm. kids yet because your kids are next. Yeah, right? that's exactly yep. it. You have to make sure that the America that we have for the next generation is an America where all viewpoints are respected, all faiths are respected, your constitutional rights are, perspect- are respected, and you're not going to send your kids to school to be indoctrinated like little Maoist soldiers, you know? <laughs> that should be on like a, a cross-stitch pillow or yes. something. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about society, Societies where all faiths are respected, uh, the Biden administration is not respecting one side of the aisle, and that is when it comes to the FACE Act. Mm-hmm. The FACE Act stands for oh, Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. Girl, wow, wow, yeah. So th- this has been all over the news. This is not the first story. This is uh, one of the more surprising stories. Mm-hmm. But Sarah, before we get too deep into the specific story, can you go into detail? What is the FACE Act? You already defined it. Right. And what does it protect? Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about the history because the history is interesting. So gather around, children. (laughs) Um, It was passed. uh, It was actually signed by President Clinton in 1994. And that's because between 1978 and 1983, there had been sort of this surge in violence at abortion clinics, Mm -hmm. right? And there were some... Segments of the pro-life movement who got really, really aggressive. And because they saw this as the taking of a human life, they were responding in kind. Okay, so this was... Which we don't approve of. Which we don't approve of, naturally. Um, But this incentivized passage of the FACE Act. However... Not only does this prevent individuals from using physical force, threat, or um, uh, threat of violence or physical obstruction to injure or intimidate or interfere with somebody attempting to get an abortion, this is the very critical part that many people don't talk about and, in fact, has to be reiterated because it's critical to what we're going to talk about right now. It also prevents those things, physical force, threat of force, intimidation, obstruction, with anyone who's exercising or trying to exercise their First Amendment right to worship. Why is that important? Because the current Department of Justice has been entirely weaponized. Mm. It is a political machine, and Mm. they are using this longstanding federal law not to chase down Rose Revenge, who took credit on Twitter for the fires, the bombings, the vandalization of crisis pregnancy centers or houses of worship, but rather to arrest little old ladies who are praying and picketing in front of abortion clinics. And that's kind of what brings us to the current development right now. So they've got multiple convictions at this point for individuals who are quietly protesting. And of course, everyone knows, we've talked about in this show, Mark Houck, who was terrorized in front of his children, a, a situation that could better be described as a SWAT team 
interfere uh, interference with something that we would see akin to a drug bust. Mm-hmm. If you've got a drug king, you've got exactly the same type of tactic that they used with Mark Houck. The most recent charge and now federal convictions by a jury just a few days ago um, were three pro-life activists, Jonathan Darnell, 41, Jean Marshall, 73, and Joan Bell, 74, for violating the FACE Act. And the Justice Department, of course, prosecuting the case, said in a release that the defendants were involved in a, quote, conspiracy to blockade the abortion clinic. Do with that information what you will. You're right. It's just it's so weaponized. It is any way that they can use this abortion issue as a way to club the right where these little old ladies, they, they're, they're not actually blocking the entrance to a abortion clinic. Yep. Mark Houck got into a disagreement and he will admit that he wasn't in the right, but he kind of pushed a guy who was in front of an abortion clinic. The charges were dropped. You know, the case was settled and the DOJ still prosecuted this. So the Biden administration is trying to wedge kind of into this issue. But I just can't imagine a world where people would see these 77 or where people would see these seven year old ladies and think, oh, wow, I feel like I can access abortion clinics now because they're in, in jail for 11 years. Right. But that's they're exactly celebrating it. it. They're literally yeah. celebrating putting these 70 year old women into or, you know, threatening them with prison time. And I, I need some clarification here. So correct me if I'm wrong, but It was my understanding that the reason that that little altercation with Mark occurred is because the person, you know, was harassing his child. Yeah, his oldest son. Yeah, Yeah. his oldest son and saying disgusting and honestly things that maybe they should be sent to prison for for saying to a minor. And that's who we're protecting. Like, are, are you freaking kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting in this situation here with the three individuals I just identified, each of them now sentencing has not taken place. So in criminal trials, of course, you have the conviction stage, you have the or you have the conviction stage that you have the sentencing phase. Judge Colleen uh, Collar Catelli has already ordered these three individuals to be detained. So they are currently in federal custody, wow. including these two women in their 70s. And not only are they going to face prison time, they could be facing fines of up to $350,000. I mean, these are spectacularly overblown um, charges for individuals who were quietly picketing and praying in front of this abortion clinic. I, I guess you have to pay for, you know, all of the crime happening in cities and, you know, they're they're not being arrested for crimes that are under a thousand dollars. Right. Like you got to pay for that somehow. So let, let's let's go charge these old women. that yeah. are just praying. Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. Hardened criminals. Right. We want to make sure that we remove these criminals from our street. And of course, you know, as our multiple blue run cities are burning to the ground with soaring vandalism, theft, arson, Of course, we want to make sure that two women in their 70s quietly picketing in front of an abortion clinic are, of course, being held in federal custody. And remember, this is in addition to the 88 pro-life groups and 192 Catholic churches that were vandalized, burned. I mean, we don't see any convictions there. Nope. But boy, we sure see them when it comes to people who are outside abortion clinics quietly exercising their First Amendment right to free speech. Now, the GOP has currently introduced a bill uh, in the House 
that uh, proposes to rescind the FACE Act. You know, my 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 interest in this is that if we get a different administration who wants to follow federal law, that will be an appropriate application of longstanding federal law that will protect people who are worshiping or working at crisis pregnancy centers, both of whom are protected by the FACE Act. We don't want to eliminate that possibility while we are eliminating the possibility for politicized enforcement of the FACE Act. So how that sort of rolls out remains to be seen. I think obviously this isn't going to go very far in the Senate because the Senate is run by the Dems and we know that they are very keen to make sure that abortion is protected. That is, of course, one of their sacred cow issues. Well, this will be something that we will track. I'm sure this will not be the last overreach by Biden's DOJ, but it is just so important to make sure that you're watching it and that we call this out time and time again, because that's the only way it's going to stop. We will take one more quick break, but stay tuned because we will crown our problematic woman of the week. He was evading police. We were told that he was recruited on TikTok by the cartel. He was on Facebook Live and he was going over 105 miles an hour. He came straight off that exit and he ran that red light and he crashed into her and killed them. He, he mutilated them. What you just heard are the first few seconds of a brand new documentary from The Daily Signal on the real cost of the Biden administration's border crisis. We spoke with Elisa Tambunga, a mother who has experienced unfathomable tragedy and loss at the hands of a human smuggler. You can find the full documentary telling Elisa Tambunga's story on The Daily Signal's YouTube page or across our social media platforms. It is now that time of the week, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... We've got a twofer. It's Elizabeth Mirabelli and Lori Ann West, two teachers out in California who sued the Escondido Union School District over their gender hiding policy. So it does take guts to stand up in California. It is so important that we support them. They're, they're represented by Thomas More, which is a great law firm. They represented it. They represented Mark Kalk. They represented the 77, the, they represented the 70 year olds um, with the face act. So we have like a full Thomas More show today. <laughs> yeah. But it is uh, really brave of them. And I, I really do just admire them standing up. Yeah. They exhibited tremendous courage, especially in the face of what we know is prevailing social dialogue. They stood up. They said, we're not lying to parents. It's against our religion. It's against our constitutional rights. And we're going to see you in federal court. So good for them. Yeah. No, I love it. I mean, some good things do come from California. (laughs) One good thing, at least. (laughs) Well, the wine, too. So (laughs) Sonoma's not bad. That's going to be it for this week's Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen.
and be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.